Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We turn to God's Word this morning, and I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. If you're just joining us today, we are in the middle of a short series, a topical series on worship, as we look to Scripture to remind us what we're doing here on Sunday mornings and why we're doing it. And so far, as we've looked at a couple of questions, we've looked at the question of who, who is this God that we worship, as we saw the character of God from Isaiah chapter 40. And then last week, we looked at the question of why, why do we worship? And we saw Scripture's repeated theme that the glory of God is the highest good in all creation, that the reason God created us and the reason God saved us was that we might magnify the praise of His name. So we've asked who, we've asked why. This morning we move on to the question of what. What is worship? And to answer that question, I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and I should clarify perhaps that I don't know that this, question, this passage directly tells us what worship is, but it tells us about the church. And in doing so, it traces out some of the key themes that we want to consider this morning. So if you have your Bibles, follow along as we read 1 Peter chapter 2, read verses 4 through 12. And this is God's Word. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Father, how we thank you for your word and how we pray this morning as we're gathered together as your people that you would use it to strengthen us in Christ for the glory of your name. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. When we come to ask the question, what is worship? We're asking for a definition, a statement of what exactly we are doing when we come together to worship God. And of course, definitions are quite important. Disagreeing on the definition is going to lead us to disagree all throughout the discussion on what we're doing and why we're doing it. 
For instance, as I often do when we're going to talk about a, a topic, I looked around online to see some popular definitions of worship and came to see that vocabulary.com defines worship as an extreme form of love, such that if you worship God, you love him so much, you will never question him at all. Now, I think that extreme unthinking devotion is far from the Bible's definition of worship, and so I would guess that vocabulary.com and I would disagree all through the discussion about the nature of worship and what it is and, and why we do it. But definitions are also important because they give us clarity in our own minds as to what we're doing. Students, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with a friend where a friend has come up to you and said, well, what do you do when you go to church? And maybe you've responded, well, we worship God. And then maybe that, that student's responded, well, what does that mean? Maybe you find yourself thinking, well, that's a good question. What does it mean? I mean, I know we sing some songs and I know the preacher talks, but what exactly is worship? And that's the question that I want to tackle this morning. When we go to church, what is it that we're doing together? Now, when we ask what is worship, there are really two ways we could approach this question. On the one hand, we could be simply asking for a straightforward definition of worship. What does it mean to worship God? D.A. Carson, a theologian, offers this succinct definition. He writes, Worship is the proper response of all moral beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their Creator God precisely because He is worthy. I think this is very much what Psalm 100 does. You know Psalm 100, that well-known psalm of worship, when the psalmist says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 100 is doing exactly what D.A. Carson said. We behold God for who He is. The Lord, the God, a God who is good of steadfast love and faithfulness. And then responding appropriately with all praise and honor and blessing to his name because he is worthy. So uh, from a straightforward standpoint, what is worship? It is beholding God for who he is and responding with the honor and praise as he is, is worthy. But there's another way we could ask this question because God is worthy of praise and obedience and worship all the time at every moment of our lives. But there's something unique, isn't there, about this time on Sunday mornings when we come together to worship our God as his people. We call this time corporate worship or the worship of the church. And the second way we can ask the question is, what is corporate worship? What is the nature of our gathering together here on a Sunday morning? What is it that we're doing? And that's really the question that I want to focus on this morning not so much what is worship, the proper response to God. We talked about that some last week, giving you that definition. But what is this time of corporate worship? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my definition right up front of corporate worship, and then we'll look at it in the details. So here's, here's my definition. Corporate worship is a meeting of the family of God in the presence of God for the sustaining nurture of God's people and the praise of God's name. I'll repeat that. 
Corporate worship is a meeting of the family of God in the presence of God for the sustaining nurture of God's people and the praise of God's name. So that's my definition. Let's dig into it piece by piece. Let's start with the first portion, that corporate worship is a family meeting of God's people in his presence. And if you look back at 1 Peter chapter 2 that we read to start our time, you can't help but notice how God's people are talked about throughout this passage as a distinct people, a people, a nation belonging to God and distinct from the world. You notice how verse 9 says that those who have come to Christ are God's people. They are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people at all, but now when you have come to Christ, you are God's people. Verse 11 urges us to consider ourselves sojourners and exiles among the world. And this theme of God's people as a distinct people, belonging to God, distinct from the world, you might also think of passages like Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, which reminds us that if we've come to Christ, our citizenship is now in heaven and not on earth. Or you might think of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, which reminds us that we are all one body. If we have come to Christ, we are one body under one God and Father. Or you might think of Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, which says if we have come through faith to Christ, then we are all children of God, fellow heirs with Christ himself. And we cry out together, Abba, Father. I think if you start to stack these verses, one on top of another, we find that if we have come to God through Christ, we are a people, a distinct people, one body, one family who belongs to him, whose citizenship is in heaven, and who walk as exiles in this world. And this hour of corporate worship on Sunday is our chance to gather out of the world wherever the Lord has called us to be together with one another and with him. I'm sure you've all been in a place at some point where you know absolutely nobody. And you know the awkwardness of feeling completely out of place and trying to decide which is a worse face, standing off by yourself and being completely ignored or having to make small talk with people that you don't know at all. And you, you know that awkwardness and that feeling out of place, but if you do, then you also know the relief of leaving that place and coming back home to your own family and your own people. And, and I'm sure that our brothers and sisters from Burma and Congo who worship among us could, could tell us what it's like to try to navigate America and a completely foreign culture. And they could tell the joy of, of being here in America and then finding someone else from Burma or from the Congo who speaks the same language and eats the same food and has the same cultural assumptions and the joy and the comfort of, of coming together to be with each other. Well, in the same way, you and I walk about the world through our daily routines, but we are with those of a different citizenship. But here in the church, we come together with our fellow citizens. And as different as we may be from one another, as is true in every family, these are our people. This is our family. We are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's a joy to be together. I think about 
Acts, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, with, which both give us this vision of, of the early church being out uh, among Jerusalem, being rejected, being arrested, being ridiculed. But the joy of coming together, Acts 2 talks about how they went together to the temple and broke bread in each other's homes, praising God as the Lord added to their number daily. And, and Acts 4 talks about how they, they returned together and lifted up their voice with one accord and prayed to God. And, and you see the joy of coming together as, as the family of God. But of course, as much of a joy as it is to be together as God's people, our greatest joy and comfort in gathering is to be in the presence of God. Because Scripture repeatedly reminds us that when we come together in corporate worship, we're coming into the presence of our God. Think of Psalm 100, which we've already read. Come into His presence with singing. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. This psalm of worship reminds us we are coming into His presence. Or maybe you think of Jesus' promise in Matthew 18, verse 20, that wherever two or three are gathered in My name, I will be there in their midst. God's promising as we come together that He will be with us. And you think, of, you think of the significance of this. I, as I was thinking of the significance of this, I was thinking of serving in the nursery. And if you've ever served in the nursery, you know the, the terror that comes to little children as they're dropped off and separated from their parents. And there's, there is a benefit if you are twins or you're close together. And, and you know, two 18-month-old kids get dropped off together and you see them kind of coming in holding hands and they have each other for some comfort. And that's great. But the comfort of going into the nursery together is nothing compared to the joy of when your parents show up to pick you up and you're back with them. And I see it every time, every time I'm, I'm in the nursery. I think it's the same uh, with us. It is good to be with each other. It is encouraging to be with one another. But the greatest joy and the greatest encouragement of coming together is that God promises to meet with us. And we are coming into His presence to be with Him. So God's people gathered out of the world where we are strangers and exiles to fellowship with one another as the family of God in the presence of God. That's the first part of the answer to what this time of corporate worship is. The second part then is that we gather together in the presence of God so that we might be sustained and strengthened in the Lord. And again, we see this theme sprinkled throughout Peter's description of the church. And in the verses we read in verse 5, we're reminded that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. God is building us up into this spiritual house. But in verse 2, before we actually read there, if you look back at verse 2, you would see that like newborn infants, we are to long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And you see this emphasis that there is a growing up, a maturing process that is to be true of the church. And the church, I think, according to these verses, is being built up by the power of God and we're to long for the food that's given by the Spirit of God through His Word that we might grow up into salvation. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13 give us a similar statement, a similar goal, arguing that a body of believers is to minister to one another for the building up of the body of Christ 
until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so you, you see this pattern that the church is to grow and to be built up into maturity. And this time of worship together strengthens us and builds us up in two ways. On the one hand, the accountability and mutual encouragement we receive from one another builds us up and encourages us. You know how it is, uh, anytime you do something together, you can be encouraged in that in a way that doesn't happen when you're all by yourself. And Ephesians 4 goes on to argue that it is as we minister to one another and speak the truth in love to one another that we are built up into spiritual maturity, saying that we do that so that we might not be tossed by winds and waves of the doctrine and ideas of the world, but instead might hold fast to Christ. Or maybe you think of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, where the author of Hebrews adds that we should consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so you see that the emphasis here that coming together, gathering and assembling as God has called us to do, is an opportunity to stir one another up and encourage one another that we will be strengthened in Christ. But we are not only built up by the mutual encouragement of being with one another as fellow believers. We are also strengthened by hearing God's word proclaimed to us when we are assembled together as his people. And I think Nehemiah chapter 8 gives us a beautiful picture of this. You might remember that in, in Nehemiah, some of the exiles have returned to Jerusalem, but it appears that there was not someone in that first wave that was trained in the book of the law. So Ezra comes from Babylon back to Jerusalem, and when he arrives, all the people gather to hear Ezra read to them from the book of the law. And as Ezra reads God's word to them, several Levites went among the people and explained to them the words that they were hearing. And as Ezra read and, and the word was explained, Ezra blessed the Lord, and it says that all the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And so here we have this gathering of God's people to hear and understand the word of God and to bow and worship. And what happened in Nehemiah 8 when the people did that? Well, we're told first that the people were filled with grief over their sin. Conviction of sin happened when God's people gathered around the word of God, read and explained to them. But not only were they convicted of their sin, then Ezra encouraged them to rejoice. In verse 12, at Ezra's encouragement, he said, The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so it says, They went away to eat and to drink and to share with those in need and to make great rejoicing. Why? Because they had understood the words that had been declared to them. And so we have this beautiful picture in Nehemiah 8 of God's people who are strengthened and built up both by conviction of their sin and in the joy of the Lord as their strength because they assembled together and heard the word of God read and explained to them. That is a key part of the building up and strengthening of God's people. I think one author put these two together so well when he stated, the church in this world is a pilgrim people 
and complete dependence on God for protection and sustenance. And believers need the manna of eternal life that only the ministry and the oracles and the ordinances of God for the gathering of the saints in worship is the means that God has established to gather and perfect the church until we are united again with our Lord. So here we have this second part of our definition that corporate worship, gathering together, is God's plan for feeding us and sustaining us and strengthening us to maturity that we might be prepared for the trials of life and equipped to live for Christ and built up into maturity in Christ. So that's the second part of corporate worship. So we are a family meeting gathered together in God's presence for the growth and sustaining strength Finally, we said that worship is a gathering of God's people for the praise of God's name. We see this again repeated throughout 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. Peter emphasized that we are being built up as a spiritual house. Why? To be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're being built up that we might worship, offering him sacrifices. Or verse 9, we have been called as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are called to proclaim his praise for his glory. Now, we already looked at this in detail last week, so I'm not going to spend as much time on this point this morning. Just as a reminder, we said last week, the highest good in all creation, the reason God created us, the reason he saved us was for his glory. We saw in Psalm 100, the heart of worship was responding to who God is with the praise and blessing that is due to his name. That's part of our purpose. But I think I can add just one thing to this conclusion this morning. And that is this, while you and I, while we all can, can and should worship God individually, there is a particular joy and appropriateness to coming together to magnify the name of God. And part of it is the, the joy of doing something together. There are few things in life that are more fun to do by yourself than with others who enjoy it as well. That's part of it. And I think many of us experienced this during COVID when we were trying to worship as a a church in our living rooms behind TV screens as opposed to being together as God's people. There's no comparison. But this isn't just for our sake. There is also a multiplication of the honor of God when he is praised publicly in the congregation. And the Psalms emphasize this in multiple places. Psalm 149.1 commands us to praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the godly ones. Psalm 22.22, the psalmist declares, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You see, this, this pattern is reminding us that the Lord is particularly honored His glory is particularly magnified when we assemble together and publicly declare his praise. And that is at the heart of our purpose of gathering as God's people on a Sunday morning. So so step back. What have we said here? This is what corporate worship is. Corporate worship is a meeting of God's family in God's presence for the sustaining nurture of God's people and the glory of God's name. 
That's what we're doing here on a Sunday morning. Now, if that's what we're doing, let me again conclude by offering us three applications for our worship from what we have said so far. The first application is this. If our time of worship is a meeting of God's people in the presence of God for the praise of God's name, then our focus in our worship must entirely be on God and on His Word and how that shapes our life. You know, it is so easy for us when faced with the issues of our day or the concerns of our heart to have our focus drawn away from God and from His Word. Historically, many churches on the left have departed from this focus to consider social philosophy and activism. But I've been just as grieved recently by churches on the right who have given their pulpit time to a historian lecturing on socialism or a a political candidate giving a, a campaign speech. And it doesn't matter left or right or what denomination, no generation or church is immune from the temptation to let the issues of the day become their focus rather than letting their focus on God and on His Word equip them for the issues of the day. Nearly a hundred years ago, J. Gresham Machen, who was the founder of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, he wrote this. He said, There must be somewhere groups of redeemed men and women who can gather together humbly in the name of Christ to give thanks to Him for His unspeakable gift and to worship the Father through Him. And such groups alone can satisfy the soul. Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into the church to seek refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward not out of the secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far in the background of the glory of Christ, but just with a rehashing of human opinions about social problems or easy solutions to the vast problems of sin. And so Mation bemoans, is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race and to unite in the overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross? If there be such a place, then that is the house of God and the gate of heaven and the place that will revive the weary souls of the world. That is why our commitment as a church must be that the source and the content of our worship will always be the Word of God for the glory of God. And when we turn to apply God's Word to the issues of the day, which we must do, it should never be an opportunity to rail against the world out there, but an opportunity to examine our hearts in here and to equip God's family to live for his glory in the culture and context he's placed us. Because that's the nature and the focus of worship. That's our first application. The second application is this. We have argued from God's word that gathering for worship is God's means for sustaining and strengthening his people amidst the challenges we face in life. However, I think we need to be clear 
on how exactly God strengthens and sustains his people for the challenges they face in life. Many of you know the name of J.I. Packer. Packer was one chief theologian uh, in the church in the last century. And Packer warned that the church, left and right, evangelical and liberal, has fallen prey to the temptation to come into the church and approach God subjectively, asking how I feel, whether angry or sad or ashamed or anxious, and what God will do to make me feel better this morning. In other words, the focus is on myself and what God will do to help me right now. Now, to clarify, it is absolutely appropriate to ask how God's Word will speak to every situation in my life, and God's Spirit desires to apply His Word to your heart this morning. But the problem is the direction of your thinking. If we start with the focus on ourselves, we will not be strengthened and sustained as we ought to be. Maybe as an illustration, how many of you as kids ever had your parents give you advice about going to a birthday party that went something like this? If you are constantly asking yourself whether you're having fun yet, you will probably never have fun. And it is only when you stop thinking about whether you're having fun and just focus on others and what you're doing that you can actually be set free to enjoy your time together. And the point of the advice is, when you're thinking about yourself, you can't be drawn into the joy of what's happening. And in a similar way, if we're focused on ourselves and what we're feeling and whether God is making us feel better yet, we will never be set free to drink the life-giving streams that come from beholding the beauty of God and who He is and of His character and the assurance of His promises. Instead, it's when we focus fully on Him. It's when we focus on who He is and what He has done. It's when we focus on the strength of His character and the glory of His presence and the fact that He eagerly and freely welcomes us into His presence through the cross of Christ. It is only then when our eyes are fixed on Him that we are strengthened and we find hope for whatever He calls us through. Our focus is on Him. And he, and his word, and who he is, becomes the sustaining manna for our journey wherever the Lord calls us to go. So that's our second application, that as the Lord strengthens us, he does so as he draws our eyes off ourselves to himself and applies his character and his word and his promises to our life, not from focusing on ourselves. Well, finally, a third application. I think the third application is this. Over and over and over, as we've thought about the importance of gathering together as the family of God in the presence of God for our encouragement and the glory of God's name, the emphasis has been on being together. In fact, the very Greek word that's translated as church refers to an assembly, the people who are gathered We can't be the church if we aren't gathered and assembling. We've heard Scripture's command from from Hebrews chapter 10 not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. In other words, what we've heard this morning is that there is a biblical priority and command and imperative to being together as God's people for worship. Now, 
Maybe I could talk to those who are on the live stream specifically for a minute. We know that there are many different reasons why people are live streaming and can't be here regularly with us in person. Some of you are physically unable to leave your homes. And we hope that the live stream will help you feel more connected with us as God's church. Maybe there are others for whom COVID and illness is still an ongoing concern. And for some, the reason is because of specific health reasons that you face. But for others, I wonder whether the concern for your physical health has gotten out of balance with your concern for your spiritual health and obedience to God's word. And I wonder if I could just encourage you to ask this morning whether worship with God's people stands as one of, if not the most important reasons to leave your home if you are at all able to do so. And whether the obedience of God's call to gather and the joy and encouragement of being together are high enough in the priorities of your hearts. And then for others, perhaps the issue is not health uh, or anxiety at all, but a matter of habit and ease, that it is easier to worship from home. And if you find yourself in that position this morning, I would just urge you to reconsider. In light of Scripture's commands, not to forsake assembling yourself with God's people. And just think of all that we've said here this morning, that if we do not come together to be with one another, you are missing out on the encouragement of being with us. But we are also missing out on the blessing of your fellowship and of your gifts given among us. And, and we are missing your voice in the congregation to greater magnify publicly the glory of God. And I say these things not to be judgmental, but because God has called me to hold forth the commands of his word, and he has called each one of us to examine our hearts and lives for obedience to him. There's a priority on being together as God's people, and that is the third application this morning. Oh, we've come to an end. We've asked the question, what is corporate worship? What is this thing we are doing together? We've argued that it is a, a family meeting for the people of God in the presence of God, for the sustaining nurture of the people of God and the glory of the name of God. Just step back for a minute, though, and consider again what a privilege it is to be together every week. There are so many of our brothers and sisters around the world who do not have the freedom and ease to gather, and we do. And it's not just a matter of freedom, though. We would not be here at all were it not for the work of our God through Jesus Christ. The Lord, the majestic God whom we ran from and rebelled against his sin has sent his own son Jesus to the cross to bring us back to him, to make us his own precious people. And he invites us each week to come and fellowship together with him. And here, because of Christ, We do not find ourselves condemned in the presence of his holiness as we ought to be, but we find ourselves strengthened and built up by his word through the power of his spirit, transformed more and more into his likeness and equipped for our journey as pilgrims and exiles on earth. And here, because of Christ, we are enabled once again to gather in the congregation and declare the praises of God for the glory of his name. What a blessing 
And what a privilege we have. May we take it in grateful thanks to his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which recalls us again to who we are and what we are to do and why we are to do it. And I pray this morning that as we look around and consider the blessing of gathering with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with our people, I pray that we would rejoice in what you've done for us in Christ. And Father, I ask, would you sustain us and strengthen us with the manna of your word today for whatever you will call us through this week? And would your sustaining grace today, would your word declared to us, give us joy as we praise your name for your glory. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.